0: Well, today we begin a new series, four weeks, and I'm praying that at the end of the four weeks, you'll still be here. I don't say that intentionally to be light or humorous, except I do know that we are going to be embarking on some conversations, some questions and answers, and some um, realizations that are stark, especially considering the culture in which we live, the times in which we live. What's prompting this series is primarily this deep desire I have pastorally and personally to be faithful to God. Alright? It's important for you to hear this because I want our church and I want my life and I want our family um I want us to, I don't know if there's a different word to use, I want us to remain faithful. And as the culture and as people and as circumstances around the globe lean in to try to um, throw us off course and make us unfaithful, it is becoming very important that we take intentional steps to know what it means to belong to the people of God. And so I want to bring you a series of messages from a specific chapter in 1 Corinthians. The series is called The Counter-Culture Church. And I think there's a couple of observations I want you to know about this title or about this series before we even open our Bibles. The first observation is this, that the idea of being a counterculture church or the, the, the fact that... God's people, part of their identity is inherently counterculture, is just the way it is. In other words, constitutionally to our identity is a counterculture aspect. So to embrace Christ, to take up your cross daily and follow him, to believe that he's the only way to, to come up under his exclusive claim to God is just inherently, part and parcel, a countercultural identity. But not only is it part of our constitution, there is an aspect in which we create a counterculture. And this is something you need to be aware of. I don't know that you and I, we intentionally do it, and for sure when we do it, we don't want to do it in a, in, in a way that's... Uh, You know, careless, we want to be compassionate, but part of believing in Jesus Christ will create a counterculture environment. In other words, Christ is a polarizing person. Now, you can receive or reject him, you can worship him or walk away, but here's what you can't do you cannot ignore him. Every person must come to a decision about what they believe about Christ based on what he said and what he's done. You can't ignore such a such an incredible person. His commands to us, his truth claims, as well as what he's laid out for his, his people as, how, as far as how we're to live, they create a counterculture. And though we will try to do that politely, uh, compassionately, and courageously, that lifestyle creates a counterculture. So there's two facts you need to understand. In your constitution as a Christian, it is counterculture, it just is. And then there are certain ways you'll live that will actually create a counterculture. Know that going into this series, okay? Because if you think you can run from that identity, if you think, well, I won't do anything that's gonna cause waves, I don't know that that can even, <laughs> how can you be cause of a Christian and think that way? You can't. It's part of who you are, and it's sometimes part of the, 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 the result of your obedience. Now, one of, the, one of the specific things that makes us a counterculture people is talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, and so I want to bring some attention to that one specific element over the next four weeks. So turn there, would you, 1 Corinthians 5, and let us notice together, over the next month, this, this particular thing that makes us counterculture. There are several, by the way. We may in the years to come talk about various things that make us counterculture. This is just one of them. It's the concept, the idea of what is known as church discipline. Or, in a broader sense, how do we deal with sin in our midst? And what kind of sin do we deal with? And how do we deal with it and what needs to be done? So that has come to be known as the process of church discipline in a more, uh, uh, in a different word, some call it excommunication. It's kind of a uh, kind of word, isn't it? But this chapter talks about this process of dealing with sin in our midst, And it does make us counterculture. But my heart's desire pastorally and personally is to be found faithful to God and his word. And I do think in this time of our culture, in this time of our existence, it would be very beneficial to know what the Bible says about this thing to which we are held. I think you would agree with that. So let's dig in for a month. Understand more about this specific thing that makes us counterculture. As I read the chapter in a little bit, we'll, we'll focus this today on just verses 1 and 2. You know the chapter is broken down into four paragraphs. We'll cover one paragraph each week. Each week we'll also take some live Q&A, so have your phones on. And if you have a question, you can text them into the number behind me or to the number on your worship bulletin. And that number works all week, by the way. It's not just a Sunday morning number only. Uh, you're welcome to text those in. If you're watching online, um, through our website or different platforms. You're welcome to use that number as well. Text it in. We'll just try to address questions. We'll take two or three a week, but we can take them all week long and I'll through a video format, maybe on a podcast, maybe I'll just text you personally. We'll try to bring some help to your questions. We're not answer people perfectly, but we'll do our best to help you understand what the Bible is saying, okay? So let's read the whole chapter for a moment and then I'm just gonna tackle verses one and two. And then we'll take make a few comments, have Travis up for a few comments, and then we'll take some questions. Here's the whole chapter for us. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Stark, wouldn't you say? Breathtaking. Stunning. Let's see if we can understand some things about the first two verses as we kind of begin our trek through these four paragraphs. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5 that this report which is the first thing I want you to notice, that there is an evil or a, a report of a wicked thing that came to Paul. That's the first thing to notice. He says it's reported. The word there is actually, or in some translations it's commonly, letting us know that this, this sin going on in this church was, was known. It was common. Now the sin wasn't common among a lot of people. It was commonly known to a lot of people. And so he says this sin is a sin of sexual immorality. That's more the umbrella term. The word there is pornea, from which we get our word pornography. It's kind of an umbrella term for sexually immoral sins. Paul says this specific sin, though, is one that's not even tolerated among pagans. Do you see that in that phrase? What he means by that is that, that it's the kind of sin that even lost people would deal with. It doesn't mean it never happens among lost people. The word tolerated there means they don't put up with it. So he's saying, wow, this sin that's in your church, that's commonly known, that's just there that you're not dealing with, by the way, even pagans deal with that. Kind of like saying, guys, what's your deal? Here's the actual sin he's referring to. A man has his father's wife. I want to be very careful here. We have a number of kids in the room. I would encourage you just to talk to your parents more about what this means. If you have questions, that'd be the appropriate first channel. But I I would be able to say this, that he was talking here about an incestuous relationship. Now, it could be one in which a natural mom and a natural son, as horrendous as that is, they're having sex relations. More than likely, and I think this is where I would land, it's speaking of a, a man who remarried And probably married a younger woman, because in that culture, if you were a widow or an unmarried woman, at a certain point, you became destitute if you didn't have a man to take care of you. So often they would marry an older man who was secure and he had some wealth or some property. This is probably speaking of a man who's on his second marriage for whatever reason, married perhaps a younger woman, and now she is involved with this man's son. So you could say a stepmother. Either way, it's an incestuous relationship. And Paul here is is astounded. Watch this, church. He's astounded not only at the report of this wicked thing. He's astounded at their lack of response to the wicked thing. In fact, I would submit to you and contend, he's more astounded that they're not doing anything about it than he is that it's actually happening. So notice, first of all, yes, the report. But notice the response. He says in verse two, you are arrogant. Now, we don't know why they're proud about this. Even while I'm talking about this in your presence, I don't sense any pride in your faces. I sense a little timidity in the room, don't you? You're like, how much longer are we gonna talk about this? Is he gonna be careful? And hey, I get that. I'm with you, I'd be in the same boat. I'm trying to be careful and and correct here. And yet Paul's saying here, guys, this is happening in church, it's commonly known, and you're proud of it? Now, just as we don't know the exact details of the situation with the sexual immorality, we don't know the exact details. We have this one phrase. We, all do. we also don't know the details of the areas. We don't know why they were arrogant. Could it be that perhaps there was some wrong doctrine in the church? The doctrine that said, the more you sin, the more grace you get. You know, Paul had to correct that doctrine. You can read the book of Romans, and he, and he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, No way. So there was this false Doctrine that, that was pervading some of the early churches that just go ahead and sin a bunch because then you get more grace. Maybe it was a man who had money or influence in the church. And so they were afraid to deal with him. We don't know exactly why. But for whatever reason, the Bible here says they were proud that they weren't dealing with it. Notice when it says, when I say he, they weren't dealing with it, they weren't dealing with the man who was involved with his father's wife. He seems to be the only one that Paul has in the crosshairs right now. Ever wondered why he's not trying to uh, ask the church to deal with the woman? My opinion is the woman's probably not a Christian. And as he lays out in the chapter, he says, I'm not responsible to judge those who aren't part of the church. Like, my role is to help the church maintain its distinction. So my guess is the woman's not a Christian. But the man apparently claims to be. He's in the church. He's involved. And for some reason, they're proud that they've ignored this, even though it's commonly known. Paul says, you shouldn't be proud. Instead, you should rather mourn. The word there is grieve. You should be sad and uh, this should bother you. In fact, it should bother you to the point that you remove this person from among you. Do you see the last phrase of verse two? There's one part of this translation that, that and I wouldn't say it's a bad one at all. These guys are way smarter than me. But there is a, a word that I, I know is in the original that I think really affects how these two connect. It's the words in order that. The Greek word for that is henna. And in the Greek language, when you have a henna, it's a word that implies a result. So here's how I think this could legitimately read. You should rather mourn in order that the person who's done this would be removed from among you because their sadness and their grief would be to the point that they'd say, we can't let this exist. We have to do something. So Paul here is associating, watch this, sadness in the right spiritual sense, mourning and grief, humility with action. And he's associating pride and arrogance with inaction. Do you see that? He says, you're proud, you're arrogant, you're not doing anything about it. We don't know why, but they were. And he says, man, you should rather be humbly and mournfully sad so that you Take care of this. Now, here's what I think is so striking about that. And this is, in of itself, very countercultural. Our culture would say to you it's the proud people who have clear cut standards and they want to make sure that they're quote unquote judging people. They're the ones who want to call out the wrong. That's because they're proud and they're intolerant. And it's the humble people who just kind of wipe away the boundaries, clear away the parameters. And we just say, you know what? There's room for everybody. But can I say to you, Scripture says the exact opposite. It's actually pride that, has, that, that lacks the courage to call a spade a spade. And the Bible says here that actually humility, a, the right sense of, of sorrow over sin will force us and cause us to act. So when you hear the talking heads And when you read the headlines that the bigots and the arrogant and the proud are all those who have these narrow boundaries. They're the ones who have no tolerance. Just know that's not what God says. God says it's actually humility that breeds clarity. I want our kids to especially hear this. Humility breeds clarity. And you say, Todd, why is that? Here's why. Because it's the humble that are able to say, I don't write the rules. I don't set the standard. Someone greater than me does that. His name is God. He's left that for us in his word. And so I submit myself to his word. And I think you're under his word too. Does that make sense? It takes humility to realize you're not the God of your universe. You're not the boss of your life. That's how kids would say when they were little. There's someone greater than you. It's God. And he has laid out for us how we should live our life. He has created us. He knows what's best for us. In love, he has given us his, and I'll use this phrase, guidebook for life. The commands for health physically and spiritually. It's God. And so humble people come up under that and realize, wow, I answer to a creator And you answer to a creator. And so we have to hold each other accountable to this this creator's boundaries. It's the proud who say, there's no creator. I'll do what I want to do. You can do what you want to do. We'll call all of it good. Are you catching this? Are you tracking with me? The Bible says the opposite of what the culture does. Now, the question then becomes this. Why is Paul so concerned about their lack of response? You can see that he gets the report, he's he's struck by it, but he's more struck by the fact that they're not doing anything. In other words, he's more upset about their attitude about the sin than he is the sin. Now, I'll bring some more insight to that on my podcast Tuesday, so listen in, okay? But that is a true statement. He's more upset about the attitude they have towards the sin than he is about the sin itself. And because they're not doing anything, He knows two things will happen. Here's why I think he's so seriously asking them to do something. Because their refusal to deal with ongoing, blatant, unrepentant sin, it blurs their distinction as a body, first of all. Notice this in verse 1. He contrasts uh, their actions with that of pagans who actually would deal with it. In other words, he says, guys, you're acting just like the world. That's not the point. We're a distinctive Contrasting people. And so he says here, if you don't deal with it, you're gonna blur your distinction. The second thing is you will forfeit protection. I love the way in this text, as the as the chapter unfolds, we'll say more in the coming weeks. Paul actually lays out actions that we take as a church that protect the body's purity, but also the individual. In fact, I'll just prove this simply to you and quickly. You notice that in verse, I think it's verse um, 5, Paul says that when, they were, that when they go ahead and deal with this situation, it says the man's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's a word of protection. Do you catch that? Paul knows that church discipline, that dealing with ongoing, known, blatant sin in the church dealing with that actually protects the church's purity and actually helps the individual who's sinning. And so Paul says, when you refuse to deal with sin that's ongoing, unrepentant, blatant, and known, he says, man, you're you're forfeiting protection and you're blurring distinction. You see, church, sin affects us personally and corporately and we must be willing as a countercultural people to deal with it biblically. We must hold to the values of distinction and protection. And when the church refuses to be humbly distinct from sin, we will unfortunately become proudly undisciplined towards sin. When we refuse to embrace our distinction, we'll find the protection that we have lessening as well. So these two values are two things that that he holds and that he puts forward, and he says, this is why you must deal with this situation. Now, that's verses one and two. It's kind of the the overview of the landscape. It's pretty sobering, staggering. I can see in your faces, you're like, wow, welcome to the first Sunday of September. This This is stark. I get that. I'm with you. Maybe you're asking, Todd, what does that mean to... FFC members, or what does it mean to someone who's thinking about membership, or what does it mean to someone who just showed up for their first week? What do we take you know, for 2020 from this written in probably 50 or 60 AD, uh, yeah, AD? Well, I've asked Pastor Travis, who oversees our discipleship aspects here. In other words, he oversees those who desire to become members, and there are steps along the discipleship pathway. That's his role here. So, Travis, come answer a question for us and for me. Tell us how this either plays out or applies. Help me preach this applicationally to members of First Family.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty tough passage, pretty blunt, um, pretty interesting, specific situation. Uh, But for sure, there's um, something that in this text applies to every single one of us. So hopefully, the specific sin addressed in verse one is very rare inside of this congregation. That's our hope, for sure. But the conversation that's in verses one and two between Paul and this church I hope is very common, very normal. You see, Paul has this heart and this love and this passion for this congregation, for this community of believers, and he's willing to address it bluntly. And that is what should be very common. So there's two things that are happening here that apply to every single one of us, regardless of the sin that we're struggling with. Uh, The first is, is accountability or correcting. Every single one of us has things in our life that aren't yet yielding to the Holy Spirit and under the control of Jesus. And so every single one of us need correcting or to be held accountable. There's a standard that God desires for us all to live to live by, and it's the church's job to come alongside, to point out weaknesses, to point out um, areas where we are not living up to God. And so every single one of us needs that. And then the second is a call. To respond with humility. So, again, regardless of the sin, how do you respond when that sin is addressed? Do you respond by defending yourself, by bristling at the statement, How dare you? You accuse me of that? Or do we respond in humility? Like, Man, I wanna live for God. I wanna honor Him with my life. Um, of course, of course. Thank you for calling that out. I want to turn and repent. So, the first one there is, again, accountability to allow people into our lives to, for us to be known, for us to share the, the dark corners of our lives, to be known, and to have somebody have the freedom and ask them to call us out. And then the second is to respond with humility. Lord, have mercy on me. I don't wanna be that person. I wanna turn and I want to change. At First Family, there's, I think, two specific ways that we aim to do this, to to play this part in your life. The first is church membership. I get to lead church membership class and walk people through um, the process of that. And what I get to say every single time is one of the greatest benefits to church membership is accountability. When you go through church membership, you are asking the elders, the pastors of the church to watch after you to look after you, to, to keep an eye on your life and your doctrine. And so it's the elder's job and the privilege for them to shepherd you, to oversee you, or to be a soul watcher of your life. And you want that. So church membership is a tremendous blessing. If you're not yet a member, we'd love to help you go through that process and to join as a member of First Family Church. And the second one that everyone can be involved in is small groups. Small groups is the opportunity where you say to those in your small group with you, will you watch my life? I'm gonna share with you the corners of my life, the, the, my marriage, my, how I parent, how, if I'm a good neighbor, what I watch. I'm gonna share with you those details and you, I give you permission to call me out, to correct me, to hold me accountable. And then you're telling them, and here's what I promised to you. I will respond in humility. When you correct me, I will admit my sin, I will respond in humility, and I will work to repent. And those are two tremendous benefits to being involved in your local church, to have elders who oversee you in a community of people who oversee you. And we say this all the time. It's one of our core values here at First Family Church. We believe that we grow best in community. For those... exact two reasons for somebody to correct us and for the opportunity for us to respond in humility.
0: So what Travis is describing, now watch this church, is a lifestyle that prevents you from arriving at chapter five, verses one and two. See, we shudder at five, one and two, like, man, I don't wanna be in that situation. Mm -hmm. I don't either, but to avoid this place, adopt that lifestyle. And and by the way, we do this. Your elders do this. I've been approached individually by an elder, or maybe two, who said, Hey, we spot some short-sightedness. And I've had to hear that humbly and say, you know, I didn't quite see that, but I can see what you're saying, and I just have to accept that and ask God to keep refining me. I remember just last week, I went to Travis and I said, Hey, I think I sinned against you and something. And he said, No, you didn't, and we got worked that out. And, so it's just an ongoing atmosphere you have to have in your family, in your small groups, on our staff, in your elder team, and in our church. Because that kind of atmosphere, that ongoing conversation like, hey, how's life? And you telling me how's life? And we're working through this prevents five, one, and two from just suddenly popping up in the landscape and like, man, it doesn't really ever pop up. It's a refusal to deal with things in a small way that suddenly finds ourselves in a bad way, in a, you know, in a large way, so to speak. Travis, thank you for just highlighting repentance. Would you stay and answer a few questions with me, maybe? I'll do my best. If we get any? Yeah. I won't trap you or anything, I promise. I'll just have you clean up after me if <laughs> okay, I can't handle it. it. How does that sound? Jason, we have, we have two questions. Let's, let's try to tackle them. Take a deep breath here, and we'll go for it. From the Old Testament to the New, when did the sin of relationship change? Adam's sons and daughters, Jacob and his wives, gave him their maids when they could not bear children. Okay, that's like a, probably a question that has to have a book to answer it. That's a pretty massive answer, but I respect the question. And here's the, my best answer, and I'll, maybe I can talk even afterwards at length with this person. That's a great question. Is I wouldn't say it changed. I think God's standard has always been one man, one woman for life. Mm-hmm. But were there people in the Old Testament who did wrong things that God still used to their work? But I don't think that things changed. I think God's heart has always been as Genesis 2 portrays it. And just like us, they skirted that at times. But God is gracious. And when they repented and received forgiveness, aren't you glad God still uses sinners? He uses me and you, right? Travis, right? Mm -hmm. So that may just be a surface answer. If you wrote that, or maybe you're online, uh, I'd love to be able to talk more about that. Because I think that is a common situation folks struggle with the old testament like man that seems so different Did something change somewhere i'd love to talk with you not trying to run from it but in the sake of time that's probably the best answer to give in the short
1: term anything you want to add travis no he does become clearer you're right your answer is exactly right but there is i don't know the chapter and verse off the top of my head but it does become clearer about what his law is in deuteronomy there are chapter and verse where the expectations are laid out so you're right. I think yeah. that was the truth from the beginning.
0: And Revelation, as we know, is a progressive situation. Mm-hmm. So just keep that in mind. That's getting off subject here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's take the second question if we can. How do we balance 1 Corinthians five with going out into the world to spread the gospel and gather in these sinners? That's a good question. Um, balance 1 Corinthians 5 with going into the world. I, Uh, Maybe the best way to say is that we just are a both and kind of people because we're sinners who've been saved by grace and we know the only way to receive forgiveness is through Christ. And so we want to share that message. When you share that message, you're going to receive kickback. Okay, that message, remember, is is going to create a counterculture because it inherently is counterculture. Acts 5, Philippians 2, 1 Peter 2, they all address this. So if you're asking how to balance it, I would probably just, um, it's, it's another, again, it's a large question. Don't see them as exclusive of each other. In other words, just because the gospel, um, maybe you're asking, maybe because it makes some people upset, it's not heard what well, you think, well, should I not do that? I, I don't think that's the right approach. We, we have a gospel to share. We are sinners. We receive forgiveness. Let's take that in humility and share with those who are sinners as well that there's a way to be forgiven. It's through Christ. I, I don't know that I would try to, I'm not saying you're separating them, but I, I don't know that, um, uh, if you're saying 1 Corinthians 5 seems like it's, it's harsh. 1 Corinthians 5 deals with what's in the church as well. So if I'm witnessing to others, I'm not trying to necessarily hold them to a church standard. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to make them obey things we've committed to as members. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to witness to the gospel and have them take the first step. Once they take that step, then we'll go to the next step. Add to that, Travis, if you want to.
1: I'm not sure I can. I kind of muddled my way through Mm, it. That's tough. I think one of the things I'm continuing to learn is the purpose of the local church. And I believe that the local church is for the believers. And so then, as you say at the end of every service, you are now sent And so we are to be a distinct holy people who are to live amongst a community. And so I think there should be a distinction between those who are gathered here today and then those who you will live life with this week. Mm
0: -hmm. One of the best quotes that I've heard just years ago is that the gospel isn't um, a list. The gospel is a pronouncement of good news. So I might come to you as a member and say, here's some things that God wants us to do. Ephesians 5 you know, these are uh, describes the Christian's sexual ethic. So here's how we should live. But I don't take Ephesians 5 to a lost person. I take one thing to a lost person. God has reconciled yep. you through Christ. That's an announcement. Yep. That's news. I don't take a list. Right. I might come to you with a list of some type. You might come to me with a list. And I don't mean legalistic, but you know, like, hey, here's commands. We live in that environment as members of God's body, but lost people, I don't take a list. Yep. I just take one bit of good news. Jesus Christ has reconciled sinners to God. Yeah. Amen. Does that help a little bit? Mm-hmm. I hope so. There is one more. We'll just tackle this too. We need to try to hurry here a little bit. But how do you adapt to that lifestyle more humbly and accountably when those closest to you clearly do not? I'll give one word of advice that I would take from the book of Proverbs. And then, Travis, you can give one. I'll give you more time to think. I would say... Watch your words. Words are usually the trigger for most con- for, for most conflicts. It breeds a lot of separation. So if you can just watch your words, that would be a great way to start. There's probably a lot of other advice, a lot of other pointers, but I would say, based on Proverbs, you know, where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And you apply that to words. If you can just watch your words, you may reduce a lot of the friction. You're not saying that you're... Um, capitulating or not believing you're not you're not doing that at all you're just saying i just want to watch my words and reduce the friction that's probably what i would say initially how would you answer that travis
1: you're shaking your head i I don't think i could put any clearer than that i think that's that's difficult i don't think i have a great answer sorry no problem no problem well travis thanks buddy appreciate it so much yeah thanks
0: um let me see if i can summarize some things we've said and we'll wrap this up we're going to land this plane We've taken a few questions. We've talked about Paul's heartbeat here in these first two verses. How would I summarize maybe what he's after in regards to the right kind of attitude in the church? I'd say this, that you can call it our take-home truth, our sermon in a sentence, but that the road to becoming a humble counterculture church, in other words, a church that values distinction and protection, the two values that we know he's mentioned here, he doesn't want them to forfeit those and to blur those, right? Right? So, if you want to remain and retain those values, the road to becoming that kind of church is paved with spiritual sorrow over sin. Remember, his first question is why are you so proud? You should be mourning. So, can I just ask you a question? When's the last time you shed tears? over your sin or someone else's? When's the last time your heart was grieved that sin was happening in your life and affecting those in your church or was happening in someone else's life and affecting those in the church? When were you so torn up that you had to humble yourself and just say, hey, can we have a conversation? I love you. Man, my heart is torn right now. You see, if we ever, not if we ever, but if we want to continue to pursue being a counterculture church, and by the way, we are. Remember, it's part of our constitution, and we often create it, and that's just the way it is. But if we're to learn how to do that well, we have to be willing to, to pave that road with the humble sorrow over sin. And can I just be very transparent with you? This is probably one of the top most difficult things I do. You work with people for a long time and you, you give as much quote unquote rope as possible. You pray, you, you, you talk. But there's always that moment. And sometimes, as a man or woman, you have to say, hey, how much longer? Are you going to keep doing this? And there's been times that my knees will shake and knock together. My voice quivers. It's hard face to face to say to a man, I'm begging you to go back to your wife. It's hard to say to a woman, I'm pleading with you to return to your husband. Or to a, a young man or a young woman or a couple just in other sin that they've been in for a long time, blatant, unrepentant. But can I say to you, with full transparency and boldness, that's actually what shepherds do. Shepherds watch out for sheep. And I don't know any good shepherd who would stand by and watch his sheep get eaten alive by a wolf. Is it nerve-wracking and difficult to talk to people in that way and on those things, it sure is. But it is pastoral malpractice to take a step back and just say, well, they'll figure it out. Shepherds help their sheep. They go to them, they, they watch for their soul. And so in humility, we must be willing as a body to pave this road of the counterculture church with a humble, sorrow over sin, it should break us. It reminds me of James 4. I'll just read you what James said about this. He said, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What's James calling for here? This clear sadness and grief over sin that infiltrates our life personally and our church corporately. Now, before I let you go, I want to just give you two things that this necessarily means, and I'll be done. This necessarily means there is such a thing as sin. You may have heard a lot of what I've said today, but I hope you've heard this, that there is a standard to which we are obliged. It's not a legalistic standard. It's not one given for our pain. It's given by God in love to his creation. But there is a standard of right and wrong. And our culture right now is doing its dead level best to change your mind. And you can pick your issue, whether it's marriage, life, even death, gender. You can pick your issue. The goal of the culture, it appears, is to just level the playing field. So there is no right or wrong. It's just every man can do what's right in his own eyes. That's an impossibility. That's anarchy. It's illogical. It's ill theological. So I want to submit to you. There is a standard. This passage necessarily means that there is a right and there is a wrong. But then it also means this necessarily, that there is a savior. And Paul alludes to this in about verse seven when he says, don't forget church, Christ has been sacrificed. So at the close of a pretty stark, sobering message, hear this. The answer for your sin has come. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross and when he did, the Bible says that he destroyed the works of the devil. Yes, you and I still battle sin in its presence and in its power. We have to overcome it through the Holy Spirit, but guess what? Its penalty will not bite you. You see, we can confront sin humbly now because Christ conquered it finally then. So we need not be afraid of sin's ultimate penalty. We can actually confront it humbly in ourselves and others because Christ has won the victory. The gospel is the greatest news for both the lost person and the Christian. So I encourage you today with this news. As you think through 1 Corinthians 5 and all of its implications and explicit statements and what it means, don't forget this. Jesus Christ has won the victory over the very thing the church has to confront. And so we do so humbly but courageously and confidently.
1: We hope you enjoyed
0: today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.